Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on today's show, we know the healthcare system is feeling the pressure. How bad was it over the Labor Day long weekend? Transitional economy. It's a ways off. So what are we doing in the meantime to make sure that we're ready for it? And post-secondary education. A lot of parents, a lot of young people in this country feeling a lot of anxiety over the financial side. All right. So uh, we'll watch and see what the numbers are this afternoon. And uh, you got to think it's going to be yet another bit of gasoline on the fire because we were told last Friday the reason we had to take steps is because our ICU had reached 95% capacity. Um, I, I read there was only 10 ICU beds available in the province heading into a Labor Day long weekend. That's not where you want to be. So we'll see how things went over the Labor Day long weekend. But in the meantime, we can get a first-hand report from on the ground. Dr. Shazma Mathani joins us now. Uh, she's an ER doc at the Royal Alec, which is one of Western Canada's busiest, if not the busiest, ER. Um, doc, thanks so much for your time again this morning. I appreciate it. Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me. So give us an update. How did things go this weekend? What was it like down at the ALEC? Oh, it was busy. Um, I worked uh, Friday during the day, Saturday evening, and Sunday evening, and it was um, uh, one of the busier long weekends that we've seen. Lots of um, traumas coming in, lots of COVID as well. Uh, we were we were pretty much running the whole time. It was a very, very busy weekend. So, yeah, I mean, long weekends, we know cases go up. I mean, not cases, but just the number of people that you see because, as you said, people are out and about. So um, in terms of how that affects the way things are operating, when we know that the hospitals are really straining at the seams because of COVID, how does that affect those patients who don't have COVID but are coming in for the typical reasons people do on a long weekend? How does that affect the way that you operate, the way that you as a doctor run that ER and deal with these patients? You know, that's a really great question because I don't think people really um, make that connection of when things are busy with COVID, it it affects every other patient that comes in. And so um, as we're seeing more patients come in who are sick with COVID, it just uh, lowers our resource capacity. Um, More beds get occupied, and that means that anyone that comes in, all comers, are waiting longer. And so we were doing a lot of juggling uh, over the weekend, even just with trying to move things around to get people up to ICU who needed ICU instead of waiting and emerge and taking an eMERGE bed. And so there was lots of juggling and logistical challenges that occurred over the weekend to try to make sure we were seeing everybody as quickly as possible. And all that juggling and all that managing, uh, that also affects the level of care, right? Because you guys are busy doing that uh, when you could be seeing patients. Well, that's just it. I mean, thankfully, we have pretty amazing charge nurses who... um, who are very good at doing that juggling, but it certainly weighs on the minds of everybody, just trying to kind of, you know, seeing that waiting room number grow and, and knowing that we don't have a lot of space to see those patients in it, it takes a big mental toll. And, you know, our, our priority is always to, to see people as efficiently as possible. And, and when those logistical challenges present, it becomes very challenging. Um, I think there's some confusion around these ICU bed numbers. I think people have their own thoughts about what it means. So let's just clarify here. When we see from the province that we've topped... Um, uh, 100 in ICU in Alberta or whatever the number is, what exactly does that mean? That means 100 
COVID patients in ICU beds, right? Like that's over and above the usual ICU load. Yeah, that's a really important distinguishing um, point to make is that, uh, you know, if we only have about between 200 and 250 ICU beds total in the province, almost half of those are being occupied by uh, COVID patients. And that's above and beyond the other people who have non-COVID critical illnesses that need ICU beds. And so that's the challenge that we're seeing right now is that, um, you know, there's this extra pressure on ICU beds above and beyond what's, um, what's typically anticipated. And that's what's causing the trouble right now. Um, I, I get questions from people all the time. And I think it's a great question in terms of, you know, when we hear that people are in hospital with COVID, I'm, I'm sure there's differing um, degrees of severity of illness that all these different people have. And some people say, you know what, I'm, I was considered in hospital with COVID. I went in, they assessed me and told me to go home and rest. So let's just walk through it. Like when somebody shows up in the ER with COVID, what is the treatment pro- protocol or the assessment protocol? Like what does, what happens when a COVID patient presents in your ER? For sure. So um, really, we treat them like any other assessment, um, kind of standard assessment of a patient, right? And so we see them, we might know uh, when they come in that they already are COVID positive because they've had a swab previously. And so they tell us or we can look it up knowing that they're COVID positive. And typically, they're coming in with worsening symptoms. And so whether that be um, worsening shortness of breath, trouble breathing, a lot of people lately are presenting with gastrointestinal symptoms, so lots of vomiting and diarrhea with COVID. Um, and so we assess them, we, we look at their vital signs, and we basically decide in that moment, um, uh, after doing some tests and, and monitoring them, whether they can go home and safely kind of um, monitor themselves at home, or whether there's something that's pushing them over the edge that requires them being admitted to hospital, so staying in hospital, not just being discharged home. And so the numbers that we're seeing that are being reported, it's not just people that present to hospital or to the emergency department with COVID and get sent home. It's the people that are actually sick enough to be admitted to hospital and stay. Okay, so that number, hospitalized, you must be admitted to be considered in that count. That's correct, yeah. So the, the number of people coming to hospital, so coming to the emergency department with COVID is above that, right? Because there are people that will get sent home um, to have ongoing, like, kind of continuous monitoring of their symptoms at home by themselves. Uh, but the people that are, are, are sicker need to be admitted to hospital, and those are the numbers that, are, that we're hearing being gotcha. reported. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this steady march. The numbers go up, and we all see, we all see where this is going, Doc. We, I mean, it's it's inevitable. We've been through this three times before, um, mm-hmm. and we always, you know, people always say, well, "Why don't we just expand the healthcare system? Why don't we just, you know, why aren't we ready for this? This is the fourth time." Um, what kind of things go on in that hospital? Seeing this wave approaching, um, there's only so much you can do. I understand that, um, but what kind of things are being done? So, I mean, first to answer uh, answer your first question, I mean, it's not just as simple as just expanding capacity and making more beds, right. um, because you need people, right? And and we're are, we're seeing that uh, at the same time as this fourth wave is happening, we're also seeing a staffing crunch, and so there are two opposing forces uh, that are happening here, where we, you know, would love to be able to expand capacity to accommodate this extra wave of, of sick COVID patients, but. Staffing right now is the limiting factor because everybody is just so burnt out and done after a year and a half of this. Um, so that's that's the one thing that we, it's not just as simple as increasing capacity. Uh, that takes it's a lot of moving parts and, and more um, specifically, it's, it's staffing that's a big mm-hmm. determinant of that. Um, and then in terms of what we're kind of seeing uh, to try our best to accommodate this, I mean, there's lots of movement uh, from an ICU perspective, uh, moving people around the province, which is really not a normal behavior. Um, 
that we typically see. And so trying to kind of, uh, you know, people who normally would go to Edmonton from the north part of the province uh, are, um, we've had situations where they're actually going to Calgary for an ICU bed instead because there's no capacity in Edmonton. So lots and lots of moving around the province. So people being farther away from their families and farther away from home when they need an ICU bed. Um, and then within the non-ICU patients, even just, you know, people are waiting down in the emergency department longer before they move upstairs to be admitted because, again, it's just so stretched thin upstairs. We're opening more COVID units. Um, you know, the, the the concern that we have, and I think that um, it's inevitable, is that we're, we're going to be talking about this triaging protocol again, right, yep. the one that um, was discussed back during the third wave. Uh, because we're, we're certainly getting pretty tight for resources um, right now. And we have to remember that um, one, of the, one of the kind of first steps of that triaging protocol is, is to start approaching ICU as more of a provincial, um, provincial view. And so we're already kind of moving towards that right now. So just if there's a bed available in, I don't know, Lethbridge, and you're in Edmonton and you need that ICU bed, you're going to Lethbridge. Just take advantage yeah. of what's available. Exactly. And typically it's the other way around. It's more... Um, uh, parts of rural Alberta that yeah. are coming into the to, into the big centers, but even you know, like I said, you know, someone from Edson would typically go to Edmonton, and, right. and we were seeing uh, people from Edson were actually going to Calgary instead, just because of how tight things were uh, a couple weeks or uh, last weekend. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it's like working in a in an ER right now, Doc. And uh, I really, really appreciate you taking ten minutes to chat with us every once in a while and give us an update. Uh, I know you're going through it, and uh, thank you for the for the work that you're doing and. Uh, keep it up as long as you can. I don't know how you do it, but I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Appreciate yeah, it. That is uh, Dr. Shazma Mathani, who is an ER doc at the Royal Alec. And uh, I love having her on because I think that firsthand, um, just the factual account, this is what happened this weekend. This is where we are. This is what we're doing. This is how we treat patients. Um, I think, you know, we hear the numbers and we see the numbers and ICU is at 95 and hospitalizations are at 250 or, or whatever the number is. And we sort of say, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And um, I, I can't thank Dr. Mathani enough for coming in uh, every once in a while and saying, well, this is what it means. This is the situation you may face when you show up in hospital. We've been talking about this for years, right? The transition economy, the green economy. We've all heard all the different descriptors. Uh, It's been inescapable for years now. Front and center in this transition, of course, is our province and the thousands of people who have long made a living in oil and gas. Now, it's not hard to understand how and why this discussion causes some real anxiety, some soul searching. What is my future? Is it time for me to look to something else? Is there a future in oil and gas? And our next guest says... That's something that's on the minds of a lot of people, and there is a strategy that we can deploy here. So let's talk to Jim Stanford, who's an economist and the director of the Center for Future Work. Uh, Jim, thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Shay. Great to talk with you. Now, as I said, like it or not, and and we understand a lot of people absolutely hate it, and, and you know they have their reasons, and they, they're understandable. Um, this transitional economy that we keep hearing about, it's upon us already. We know thousands of jo- jobs have, have already been lost in Alberta. It's here, right? 100%. Uh, and, and your key phrase there, Shay, is like it or not. You know, we can tilt at windmills and wish this wasn't happening. I, You know, I grew up in Alberta. I was born and bred there, and I, I remember the bumper sticker, uh, it said, please, God, let there be another oil boom, and I promise not to piss it all away this time, right? We kind of had that attitude. Yeah, we'll have tough times, but there'll be another oil boom. 
Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, this time, uh, there isn't going to be another oil boom. It is clear that the world energy system is transferring away from fossil fuels. And ultimately, uh, this is a good thing. But in Alberta in particular, that's going to be a challenge. And uh, what we got to do is in, instead of trying to deny that it's happening or even this idea that if we talk about it, we're somehow an enemy of Alberta. This is, I think, the, the most um, unhelpful dimension of it. Uh, what we should do is think, how, how do we get ahead of this? And I, I see lots of signs of this happening in Alberta today. And like you say, um, it's not just Alberta. It's not just Canada. This is global. This is happening on a global scale um, where country after country after country is coming in with timelines of moving away from oil and gas. But the important part there is there's timelines. We have time on our side here, don't we? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, you know, the goal that uh, everyone seems to be coalescing around is to get to net zero by 2050. And uh, that means most uses of fossil fuels will have to be eliminated over the next 25 to 30 years. Uh, There may still be possibility for a few, particularly, say, in petrochemicals and, and other uses that aren't related to burning fossil fuels. But most uses are going to be gone. Now, time is absolutely the best friend of transitions. You know, if you're facing this at the last minute, then you're going to have a catastrophe. But if you've got a quarter century to get ready for it, then you absolutely need to do that. And if you don't, it's your it's your own failure. You know, the, the example of how not to do this, uh, Shay, is what happened in the cod fishery in Newfoundland in the early 90s, you know, and there was warning signs and warning signs that the cod's, uh, cod stocks were uh, depleting. And then all of a sudden they said, nope, they're gone. And they had to shut down the fishery in basically a year. And it was an absolute catastrophe. We don't have that excuse here because we know this is happening. And instead of, you know, kind of painting it as a political wedge issue, let's look around and say, what else can we do? And Alberta has got an unbelievable mixture uh, of assets uh, that would support the development of other industries over the next quarter century, not tomorrow, over the next quarter century, that would keep this province as a prosperous leader uh, of the whole country. And the, the chief asset, frankly, is, is the workforce. Uh, Alberta has the youngest, most educated, uh, highest participation uh, workforce uh, in the country. And people are going to come to Alberta. We're already seeing that with the you know some of the tech firms that are coming yep, yep. Um, to the province. So I think we can be realistic about this it's it's obviously frightening to many people and with good reason but denying that it's happening isn't doing anyone any favors jim i think you touched on something else that doesn't do anybody any favors and it's important to point out there, there there's position like I'll, I'll get texts as you and i are talking well what are you going to do this winter when you can't heat your home we're not talking about this winter right and people say you know other people say leave the oil in the ground it's transitional, right? I mean, it, we can get into the fringe arguments and the divisive arguments of, well, we need oil and gas or we're going to freeze, we're going to die. And other people say, we can't have oil and gas or the climate's going to collapse. I mean, mm-hmm. it, but it, we're not yeah, talking about those, tomorrow, right? No, no. Both of, those, both of those views are wrong. And if we take that kind of long-term planning phase, uh, you know, perspective on it, um, it really does become a manageable challenge. Uh, here, here's the numbers. We've done the research uh, in terms of fossil fuel employment across Canada. Uh, it's about 160,000 people work directly in any of the fossil fuel industries, oil and gas, coal, the segments of the electricity industry that still use fossil fuels, petrochemicals, etc. Um, if you're going to phase that out over a 20-year period, you're looking at uh, replacing about 8,000 jobs a year. 
Now, the reality is most of those 8,000 jobs are going to be covered through retirement because most oil and gas workers are going to retire over the next 20 to 25 years. And oil and gas workers, on average, are a bit older than the workforce as a whole. So that's the, that's the no-brainer, is to make sure that you're, you're phasing this out in a gradual, planned way, and that will allow most oil and gas workers to finish their careers. Uh, for those who can't, then this is where we need to come in hard and fast with lots of um, alternative forms of investment and job creation, you know, whether that's uh, construction, manufacturing, technology, tourism, healthcare. Healthcare is the, by far the fastest growing industry in Canada. In fact, there's far more people in Alberta who work in healthcare than work in oil and gas. I always think Alberta should be called, you know, uh, a healthcare driven economy <laughs> rather than an oil and gas driven economy. Um, there's good jobs there. There's if we support people to make those adjustments, it can absolutely happen. And, you know, we're in the middle of a campaign, and there's lots to talk about this, especially when they come to Alberta. You know, Jugmeet Singh comes in and says, we're going to talk about sure. providing jobs today. And, you know, and I asked him when he was here, well, those jobs you're talking about, I can see maybe a year, two years, and then then what happens sort of thing. So when we talk about these political parties coming to Alberta and saying, this is what we're going to do, what should we be looking for? Because a lot of them seem to be focused on very, very short term. If you've lost your job, we're going to give you skills training, whatever the case may be. But, but right. I mean, we need to look at a, a, a shift here, right? I would prefer to be uh, planning and preparing for this long before anyone loses their job. In a way, once someone has lost their job, and of course, 50,000 oil and gas workers have lost their jobs since 2014 without that sort of planning and without those sort of transition support. So again, this is hard evidence why, you know, just trying to stick our heads in the sand isn't going to help any oil and gas workers. Right now, they're being thrown out and left to their own devices. So long before we get to that stage, we should be thinking about what are the industries that are going to fill the space as oil and gas transitions up? Some of them are no-brainers. You know, obviously, part of the transition is moving to renewable energy sources, and there's big investment and lots of jobs in that area, including in Alberta. There are also jobs uh, related to cleanup and amelioration. Think of all of the orphan wells and so on. If we had proper funding for that, um, those would be obvious uh, opportunities for oil and gas workers to then be reassigned to helping to, to clean all those up. But I think the main action is going to occur in industries that have nothing to do with energy. So, um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, Alberta's portfolio, we've got other forms of mining, not just fossil fuels. We've got lots of construction uh, happening, including uh, infrastructure and housing. Uh, We've got a booming technology sector. I love the way, for example, that Calgary is rebranding itself internationally, not as an oil and gas capital, but as a technology capital. And there's lots of companies looking at the, the skills of the workforce, the quality of life in Alberta, the cost way lower than uh, some of the other tech hot spots in the world. These are things that can support um, an industrial diversification uh, strategy that, uh, that we need. And, you know, frankly, despite the kind of hot takes that you hear from some of the politicians, I think even the Alberta government has wrapped its head around this. I think they have recognized that they need uh, a much broader vision of what Alberta's future is going to look like, rather than trying to fight this battle that we're going to produce oil and gas until we die kind of thing. Yeah, I mean... It seems like most of the players involved have recognized that at least they have to be part of that yeah. conversation. I agree. Yeah, and 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 um, I I think even you know uh, rank and file Albertans are getting with the, are getting with that program in a big way. They're probably ahead of the politicians, frankly, because they look at even if you're in the oil and gas sector, you look at uh, what you've been through. You look at that boom and bust cycle. You you worry with good reason that there isn't going to be another boom, um, and then you say, okay. 
Um, let's think about how I can actually uh, adjust. Uh, is that going to be retraining to a new occupation? Is it going to be bridging to early retirement? Is it going to go out and start a small business? Right. Uh, am I going to relocate to somewhere else? There's a number of options, and if, if we give people notice and clear information and support, um, people can absolutely um, uh, prepare themselves uh, for a future that is is not going to be, you know, desperate depression. It's going to be a different economy, but it will still be a very prosperous economy. Jim, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Shay. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Jim Stanford, who is an economist at the director of the Center for Future of Work. And it's fascinating to me. Every time that we have this oil and gas discussion, the text line just goes crazy. What are you going to heat your home with? What are you talking about? Oil and gas will be around for decades. Nobody's saying it won't be. And I've been very, very clear on this show countless times that oil and gas is not going anywhere in my lifetime. And I swear by that. That is my firmest belief. I, you know, I mean, if you take a look at even the government of Canada's projections, peak demand won't arrive until 2039. Okay. So oil and gas is not going away tomorrow. There's no question about that. We all can agree on that. Oil and gas has a future. Now, is the window getting smaller? That's the discussion. And if you want to say no, it's not. You're fooling yourself, okay? When you have every major automaker saying their fleet is going to be entirely electric within the next 10 years, um, that's going to cause a change. Some things will continue. Yes, we're going to have to heat our homes. Yes, developing countries don't have electrical grids to even come close to handling this, and fossil fuels will continue to be a going concern for a lot of them. I'm not saying oil and gas is going away. I firmly believe there is a future in oil and gas, but it's not the future that it used to be. And if you want to sit there and yell and scream about oil and gas, is, it'll be back. You're like the guy in the blockbuster refusing to admit that Netflix has now arrived. There is still a future for oil and gas, but it's changing. That's why it's called a transitional economy. So we, we would be foolish to not take a look at where Alberta fits into that, how we can take advantage of that and be part of that. Well, at the same time, making the best of the resources we're blessed with in this province and continuing to supply the world with ethical and, you know, environmentally responsible as much as possible oil and gas. I'm with you on that. I'm 100% on you on that. But we need to recognize what's coming up over the horizon and be prepared for it and plan for it. That's all anybody's saying. It's not a turning off the taps. It's over and done. No more oil and gas. Nobody's saying that. That's not reasonable. It's a ludicrous position to take. There is a future in oil gas, but it's changing. So let's be part of the conversation. That's all we're saying here. I mean, I understand it's threatening and it's anxiety producing and it's and it's scary. I get it. I fully understand that. But we need to at least have our eyes open because things are changing. I mean, that's why all of the oil industry giants have come out with net zero pro, um, proposals. All the governments around the world have. Auto manufacturers have. Across the board and you can deny it if you want, but then you're left out in the cold. Be part of the conversation. That's all we're saying. Post-secondary education. Now, this has come up on the campaign trail uh, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. All the parties putting out their positions, primarily around the subject of student loans. There's been a lot of talk about that, right? Student financing, student debt. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has accused the federal government of actually profiting off of student loan interest. Number crunchers have gone through that and said, well, maybe it's not that simple. Revenue doesn't equal profit on and on. But he's vowed to eliminate the interest on student loans. Now, regardless of which party wins, it's a safe bet that 
financial stress will continue for post-secondary students in this country. And we're going to talk about some polling on just what it's like out there right now for people in this position. Kids back in school this week, universities up and running, some shifted to online. It's all trying to make things, you know, uh, as safe as possible. We don't know. It's a patchwork. But... It just adds to the stress. So let's get an idea of what's happening out there in the post-secondary world with Stacey Janchek Alexi, who is the interim CEO of Credit Counseling Canada. Stacey, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Shay. Good morning. So when we take a look at this, we're going to be talking primarily about a recent survey here that shows a full third of young people in Canada. So that includes all young people in Canada um, are feeling financial pressure about post-secondary education and it affects their mental health. That that sounds alarming. It is. Yeah, we found, you know, in our survey that 36% of young adults said their mental health was impacted by the financial pressure of going to school. So what's happening is that, you know, students are not only faced with the pressure of having to, you know, apply for education and, you know, get good grades, but also how to pay for it. And as we can see, you know, life has not gotten any cheaper during this pandemic. No, exactly not. And their parents also saying the same sort of thing, right? They're feeling added pressures uh, to the same tune, about 36% of the parents feeling the same kind of pressure. Absolutely. And, you know, this results, you know, sometimes it's because the parents can't necessarily help them out, help their student out as much as they want, because maybe they've been impacted by the pandemic. And also tuition has gone up in price, as well as the cost of living. So there's a lot of pressure on that post-secondary student and the family to um, get an education. Um, how is the pandemic complicated this as it made it even t- i mean it just adds a layer of stress for sure but in this particular area how has it affected things i think it has added a layer of stress i mean of course you know we've got the you know the collective trauma of living through a global pandemic we've also got you know students now have to figure out as they return back into the classroom you know how to be safe you know and that's yeah. you know we're all having to reintegrate into humanity and that's awkward you know, and then also get good grades, right? You're not going to school just for, you know, health and benefits. You're going there to get an education. So there's there's tremendous pressure, Shay, for them. And I think the pandemic has just made it easier. And plus, you've got to breathe through a mask. And well, <laughs> that yeah. never feels all that great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whenever, whenever something's completely abnormal, the, the stress level goes up for sure. Um, when we talk about the financial pressures, as you said, tuition has gone up. We know that. Cost of living has gone up. Is it right across the board? I mean, is it just... Because I, I remember, I mean, back when I went to college a million years ago, these pressures were there too. People felt the same pressures, and they still talked about student loans and all that sort of thing. So are, is it that much different now than it was, say, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years ago? You know what? I can't speak to that. I can speak to my own experience with school, and I would agree with you, Shay. I mean, granted, it dates both of us, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, there were you know there were pressures back then. But I would say that tuition is much higher than it was when we were going to school, and I think that there's more pressure on students. Um, and, you know, they're living through a global pandemic, which you and I, you know, luckily we were privileged enough not yes. to have to live through this. So I yeah. think things are a little harder for them. Yeah, I think there's added stressors. So when we talk about, you know, what's going on in the federal election campaign trail, and we're hearing all the, all, all the different governments talk about this, but it seems to me they always do. Post-secondary education is always a discussion. So uh, it seems like they're focused primarily on student financing. Is that, is that sort of what you're hearing? I mean, that's where the focus is, right? I'm definitely hearing that in the news, yes. Do you think... That is the answer here, because we're talking about a lot of different sectors that are affecting these kids. It's not just the student financing aspect. You know, I think it's a 
piece of it, you know, the student loan portion and repaying that. Now, granted, that's a political issue that, you know, all the politicians are talking about. What I can say is, you know, from our perspective, you know, with our members who see, you know, consumers every day, including post-secondary students, is what they need to focus on is their own reality. Yeah. Because, you know, the global politics, respectfully, just don't help them. But they have to focus on their own reality and what's going on for them and their finances. Yeah, and it, as we said, Stacy, we dealt with this. These kids are dealing with it with the added stressor of a pandemic. And this will probably, I mean, post-secondary education is just expensive. And unless somebody decides to make it free, uh, this is going to be an ongoing concern, I would assume. It is. You know, and what I would say, you know, before we all get discouraged and feel terrible about the situation is that post-secondary education is an investment, right? So while there is the financial burden of paying for it yeah. or paying it back once you're done, it is an investment, and, you know, if you're going to get into debt, this is a good reason why, is to invest in your future so that you can go create the life and the career that you want. So it is it is a good investment, provided sure. you're not on the never-never plan. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it does pay off in the end, uh, typically, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it's a big chunk for sure. Stacey, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Truly my pleasure. Thanks, Shane. You bet. That is Stacey Janchik Oleksi, who is the interim CEO of Credit Counseling Canada, talking about it. And yeah, the poll results are kind of interesting. You know, you got fully a third of Canadians, one in three Canadians, roughly, saying that they have a lot of financial anxiety when it comes to post secondary education. And I'm not surprised. Uh, I've got two kids in college. It ain't cheap. I, I know how it works. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.